Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 120, and very excited about today's episode. Uh, I had an opportunity to reconnect and have a conversation with David Marston, who was my original supervisor, the person that introduced me to narrative therapy, practice, and theory. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. And I think you'll really much enjoy this podcast as we learn about David's background and some of the ideas and work that he's doing and uh, just, yeah, great, great, great work. Uh, okay, before we get there, I just want to let people know, I get emails, you know, I from people about like podcasts, radical therapist podcasts, favorites and stuff like that. And, you know, if you're new to the, this is really for people that are new to the podcast. Uh, there is a wealth of episodes um, that you can access. I know, you know, iTunes, I don't know what Spotify, I haven't even looked at Spotify, but iTunes doesn't only goes back so far. Uh, and so I wanted you to make aware that there's, a wealth of great conversations, um, you know, that have happened on this podcast going way back, you know, to Harleen Anderson, um, Vicki Reynolds, Alan Wade, Sheila McNamee, Molly Andrews, Jennifer White on Critical Suicidology, all these different people, great topics. But you need to go to Podbean, which is where those podcasts is hosted. And if you go there, just maybe search the Radical Therapist and Podcast Podbean, and you can get that little website that's there, and you can access all the episodes. So I'm encouraging you to do that. I know there's a lot of you know just great uh, conversations that I've had with some wonderful people, and I don't want you to miss out on any of that. That's for all the new people. Welcome to the podcast if you're listening to this new. And as always, please rate and review the show. That's how we get in front of everybody. That would be much appreciated. Now, let's get to our podcast. Let's, uh, uh, David Marston, let's talk about him. Uh, David has been intrigued with narr narrative therapy since 1991 while training at the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, he developed one of the first Los Angeles-based narrative therapy programs at the Jewish Family Services in 1992 and went on in 1999 to establish Miracle Mile Community Practice, where he is at now and uh, does supervision and training, etc. Um, and what else has he been doing? He's taught at the graduate level for years, and uh, many of which were at Pepperdine University's training clinic, where I met David. And he has taught abroad at the Dulwich Center and is on the faculty of the Vancouver School of Narrative Therapy. And he's co-authored several articles and book chapters. And along with David Epstein and Laurie Markham wrote the book, Narrative Therapy in Wonderland, which we will touch on as well. So without further ado, let's meet David. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Good to be here, Chris. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, it's been a while. It's nice to see you again. And uh, and I'm looking forward to kind of, uh, you know, going back in time with you a little bit today and and uh, hearing about your journey. I know you have, a, you know, quite a journey and been a, working in narrative therapy for a long time. And you were my first supervisor. You, you were the one that introduced me to the practice that I now love and um, continue to try to learn and learn and learn. And so thank yeah. you for that. And um, I guess I'd like to start by maybe if you could share some of your history, like how you discovered the practice. I know you've had some interesting background prior to 
discovering narrative therapy, but how you discovered the practice, how did you come into this work, and what has been your professional journey and um, so far? Yeah, um, I, well, I don't, I don't have a lot of a background before I came to narrative therapy, um, but a little bit. Um, I mean, I was thinking this morning, like, how did I, like, why did narrative latch on to me so hard? And I, I, the story that I tell myself is having grown up and gotten into an intimate, you know, romantic relationship with a young woman when I was 20 years old and spending the next five, six years together. And, and it, it, it was all happening in the midst of the, second wave feminist movement, you know, in the mid seventies. And I was watching my, my father struggle in his career. I was watching um, my mother entering the workforce after raising four children uh, for the first time at, at the age of 50. And, and what a, an intense experience that was for her. What an intense experience it was for my father, who I think felt diminished uh, in his role. And that shaped my, you know, my my senior thesis in my MSW program at UCLA, and it really shaped me in my relationship with my girlfriend at the time, and um, and and a decision to get into therapy. We happened to go see a a feminist. I think she described herself as a separatist, you know, mm. feminist separatist therapist who I really connected with. Um, and, and so I think that was where, because I didn't grow up in a political home or an enlightened home. I grew up in kind of a working class family. It was all about work ethic. And there was, you know, there was racism and sexism and homophobia in my home that I just um, parroted, you know, as a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old. And it wasn't until I reached the age of 20, you know, where I had my first, you know, beginnings of, of, you know, critique and, and, and interest in power and power relations. So I think that's where, I think that kind of, you know, laid the seed mm. or what I later bumped into. Um, but, um, but when I was in, you know, when I was in, um, you know, I went to college late. I wasn't much of a student. And even in college and grad school, I was I was fairly average. Hmm. And I didn't really find myself until I was sitting behind one-way mirrors, you know, in training programs. And that's where I discovered that I might, I might have potential. You know, before then, I didn't, I didn't think that much of myself. Um, it's funny, you know, I ran into my girlfriend from those years. I'm still close with her brother. And she asked me, this is now 10 years ago, at her brother's house for his 50th birthday, I think. And she asked me, you know, do you ever think about what we gave to each other? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, um, she said, you gave me my voice, uh, which was a lovely compliment. She said, and I gave you education. Um, she was like class valedictorian. You know, we moved up to Berkeley together where I transferred from junior college um, and on from there. But it, but it really wasn't until I got behind the one-way mirror. You know, I, I had a professor at UCLA, Michelle Silvestri, who was a very charismatic 
figure and devoted to structural strategic family therapy, mm. which really interested me for a few years, you know, and so I, I tried following in his footsteps. I, I consulted him every week, you know, straight out of grad school. I went back to Haley's clinic for a long week of training because he was, I think, translating one of Haley's books into French. Uh, and then I did what he did. I went up to MRI for a year, you know, because he did to study structural strategic and, you know, and signed up for the one day a week, you know, training up there for an academic year. And while I was there, I ran into Jeff Zimmerman mm. and Jeff changed my life. You know, Jeff was this young narrative gun up there who, who had kind of moved beyond structural strategic work. And that troubled me. Mm. And I just thought kind of on a whim, you know, like I'm going to be up here every Monday, you know, commuting from LA. I may as well just stay overnight, you know, and fit my work week in LA into like Wednesday through Saturday and just stick around for the narrative training. And that's what I did. And, you know, halfway through the year, I was, I was kind of, um, smuggling narrative ideas into the strategic program mm. um, in front of the mirror. And Weakland and Fish, you know, would sit behind the mirror and call me because I'd have a phone sitting right next to me when it was right. my turn, you those, know, to do the live days, work. Yeah. And they would say to me, you know, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> 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 but I realized about halfway through that, yeah, that narrative was for me. It was kind of a, it was like hand, you know, hand in glove for mm. me. Okay. Um, so you have a recent book, it's fairly recent, um, and it's titled Narrative Therapy in Wonderland, and, uh, and I'm wondering if you could explain what inspired, I know you have a history of working with children through your career, my understanding, right? Uh, long, yeah. long history of working with children in your career, and yeah. um, I guess I'm wondering what inspired you to write this book with David Epstein and Lori Markham? Yeah, um. Yeah, it's funny, you know, when I when I came down from MRI, I was looking for a job. And um, Jewish Family Service of Santa Monica was going through a, a little transition. Their their executive director, Fred Fisher, was looking to modernize in a way. And he had all psychodynamic and Jungian. He had a Jungian therapist running their youth and family school-based program. And he saw what was coming in the way of managed care. And, and so, you know, I interviewed for the director job of this school-based therapy program. We were in seven schools in Santa Monica and Malibu, Samo High and Malibu High and middle schools. And he, he gave it to me. You know, he gave me the job and told me, go ahead, you know, go ahead and do something new, you know, which was... You know, when I think about it now, I think, boy, that was lucky, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be able to come down here in 1991, 92, you know, 92, and and create a narrative training program, again, for 16 uh, trainees. So <clears throat> um, that wasn't your question exactly. You were asking more about the book. Yeah, like, and then, I mean, I imagine a lot of it's a culmination of your experiences over that time. Oh, right? yeah, 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 about children, yeah. yeah. And he, here I was working with children. It wasn't really what I had in mind, although, you know, I thought I was good with kids. I, ha I have a kid brother who I was famously close to in the family. Hmm. 
Um, and so I, I did think of myself as like having a way with kids. And then I, I stumbled into this job. Um, and, um, you know, and I really, I really um, didn't know what I was doing. You know, I just kind of cut my feet, you know, like figuring it out, making mistakes, learning how to be a manager, um, thinking about developing programming. But it was a good, you know, overall learning experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and so I think from that, you know, I still, you know, I, I just thought, well, that was a job when I left there, you know, I thought I knew what I was going to do with, with the help of a benefactor, I established Miracle Mile and, um, and thought, yeah, I want to train people in narrative therapy. I want to offer affordable counseling. That's what mm -hmm. we do to this day, you know, mm -hmm. 25 years later, um, but you know, but then I got back to kids because it's it's a it's a funny story. Um, uh, I went with Duncan Wig, you know, yeah. you know Duncan, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. he's a colleague, and um, and he and I decided to go to Cuba, you know, to a David Epstein conference. Now I had met David in the '90s during occasional visits he'd make to LA to teach for a couple of days. And we developed a little rapport, mm. nothing more than that. I was on his reflecting teams, you know, I'd kind of be selected um, to be on his reflecting teams. And so he knew who I was. And when I saw him in Cuba, you know, five, eight years later, he didn't even know me, mm -hmm. you know, and we, <laughs> we, we passed each other in the hallway and he asked me where an ATM machine was, didn't say hello. And I thought, oh yeah, well, you know, it was it was a long time ago. You know, he's got a lot of fans, um, and I, I went on with my business. About a year later in L.A., Charlie Lang brought him to Los Angeles to give a one day or two two day workshop. And I went to the first day. I went to the second day. I had a friend visiting from South Dakota, Greg Howard, and I was throwing a little you know get together for him later on that evening. And, and at lunch in the middle of David's workshop, I thought, you know, I better get home and and get things ready. And as I was leaving, I was like out the door, David approached me and he said, hey, David, do you have time for lunch? And I thought, <laughs> I didn't think you knew who I was. <laughs> so we went to lunch and he had just ended a collaboration with somebody who, you know, who, who he was writing with she had to go back to Sweden for family matters. And he, he was, you know, kind of ripe for a new, a new writing partner. You know, you know, he does that. Yeah. He's done that through his whole career and, mm. and continues to do it. So he was looking for another one and I was flabbergasted. And I was like, David Epstein wants to write with me. You know, I didn't think he knew me. And I, I agreed before I knew what I was agreeing to. And he sent me a paper that was already around 70% done and asked me to fiddle with it, you know, which I found intimidating, mm. but I, you know, I did. And that led to, you know, the next four or five years getting comfortable, you know, working with him and collaborating, writing, reading, uh, you know, and we wrote probably five, six articles together and then and I think he must have proposed an idea for a book. Um, honestly, I would have been satisfied, you know, having felt like I accomplished more than I ever 
dreamed of. <laughs> um, but he, he proposed it, you know, and he has a history with, with W.W. Norton. Hmm. And so, you know, I said yes. Um, and it was going to be on children. And so here I was working with children again, hmm. you know, not my idea exactly. All right. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of how we came to it. And we had a third writing partner from Australia, but she had two children, one of whom with grave disabilities, and she simply couldn't make the time for it. So she wrote a few articles with us and and then dropped out. And David suggested, you know, Lori and I were married at the time, and David suggested, you know, what would you think of having a woman's voice, and particularly Lori's? And I thought it was a good idea. Mm -hmm. You know, we invited her. She, she, you know, gave it serious thought and decided to come on board. So that's that's how we we came together. Yeah, wonderful. Um, there's a lot of rich stuff in the book, but I guess I'm, you know, maybe asking. You know, how maybe for our audience, how do you approach, and I don't want to make this strictly with kids because I know you do a lot of different stuff, but um, how, how do you approach building a therapeutic relationship with children and what role does creativity and imagination play in this process? And I know, you know, we at CFI use the wonderfulness interview all the time, and I'm wondering if you could share about that as well. Like, you know. Yeah, you know. yeah I mean, David tells a story about how he came up with that. Yeah. Um, a funny story it's on the internet um he was exhausted one weekend he was giving a presentation and he thought that he couldn't muster the energy to dive into heavy problems and so he started off with a wonderful what became the wonderfulness interview hmm. but you know the the idea you know i mean the idea is not um strange to michael you know, and Stephen is really devoting himself to his own invention, you know, around that in couples work. Yeah. Stephen Madigan's for everybody. Stephen listening. Madigan. Yeah, yeah. And it's become more and more, you know, meaningful to me. And now it's something that, you know, we, we have on our website or our, our, our soon to be revamped website, I think this week, um, that we start, we start all therapy, all therapy, adults, couples, kids with some version of that you know we want to we want to have a dignifying conversation as a starting point and we want to find out what they might already have in hand to meet the problem with mm -hmm. and um and um how do you find that goes i i think I mean, we have a lot of success with it with kids, but how about when couples come in and there's some tension, right, or what yeah. have you? How, how do you find that goes typically? Yeah, that's that's a good question because, yeah, with parents there is undying love, and a, a parent just said this in a family session I had yesterday. Although the the young person was 35, <laughs> and the dad is 70ish, but I've been seeing them and and. And, and the dad was talking about his own couples therapy, you know, with a woman he's now been long divorced from. And he, he made the, the distinction you might be implying, which is, you know, when it comes to your kid, you know, you want to talk about Israel and Palestine and you might have opposing opinions about it. And it's the kind of thing where you could think I would never date somebody who didn't hold this commitment 
in whatever it might be, or I wouldn't, I, you know, I might not be able to be married to somebody on top of all the stresses in the marriage. Um, but you're never ever going to divorce your kid, you know. And so when parents come in, they are, you know, they're poised to talk about the problem in in the same way that someone would walking into a doctor's office, you know, and they're going to be thinking, okay, you know, I want to talk about their attention span. I want to talk about this thing that happened on campus and the suspension and the way they treat their sister. Okay, I think I'm ready. And they come in the session and they don't want to waste time and they're paying a lot. And, um, and so it does take a minute, you know, to tell them, look, you know, I'm sure that you've come in to talk about real concerns, concerns that we'll get to, but I want to ask you to do something unexpected. And then you try to try to create an experience of transport, you know, and, and tell them, um, I'd like to get to know your child according to what's wonderful about them or what's special or remarkable or noteworthy or, you know, what could even have you bursting with pride, what other people say about them. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to get that story about who your young person is. And I tell them it's not, this is not exactly a joining exercise. This is an exercise to really come to understand what they might already have in hand to meet the problem with. Now, as I'm saying this, I'm watching the parent mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, has the shift occurred? Because they might be a little stuck in, gosh, this isn't what I expected. This isn't what I wanted, but I can see, you know, it's up to me to kind of keep talking, to give them time to make the shift. And then they're grateful. They're grateful for it, not just because they love their kid and they want to do right by them, but it gives them an opportunity to kind of inhabit the role that they always dreamed of themselves. Like, this is who I thought I'd be, not some, you know, nagging or angry or fed up or frustrated parent. Um, This is it right here. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's really a beautiful opportunity for everybody. Yeah, that's wonderful. You're right. You're right with couples, Chris. (laughs) Yes. You know, what do you do if they come in and they've reached a point of hatred, you know, or they've reached a point of such bitterness or resentment? And then, you know, how to go about that? You know, Stephen's thinking a lot about this, but, you know, how to go about that in a way that's respectful and not imposing takes, takes thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree, and I, I'm interested to see what you know people like Stephen come up with in that area. But um, you know, maybe a question I have for you now: What challenges do um, or are you you know you supervise a ton, and what you know what challenges do therapists commonly face when working with children in a therapy context? And um, what are the common challenges, and what do you, what, what do you what do you think about how to overcome those challenges? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to recognize children's knowledge, you know. And mm. so, if you're talking with a young person, and you're saying, you know, well, you know, how do you like how do you go about that? You know, how do you try to do that thing? Like, how do you try to? And they'll say, well, I just I just think I'm going to do it, you know, and then you can just go right by that comment. You know, you can think, 
well, listen, let's talk about mindfulness practices or let's talk about guided imagery or let's talk about a reward system or let's talk about structure or let's talk about a plan or let's come up with a schedule. And, and then we don't end up asking questions that we have to try to think up. You know, like when you say you'll just do it, are you just kind of putting out a throwaway comment mm -hmm. or is it actually an idea? No, it's an idea. Well, let's... Let me try to dive into that. You, are you ready for four or five questions about that? Mm -hmm. Are you saying that you have a mind that you can rely on? Is, it, is that a good question? Or are you saying when you make up your mind that there's muscle there? Mm -hmm. You know, you're just trying to think of questions to see, like, I'm, I'm trying to find my own interest in your knowledge or your know-how. And I'm wanting to see if you might find interest in your knowledge or, or your know-how. You know, children get caught just like parents in sort of a dominant discourse uh, that they are precious, but it's not their job to think. Right. Um, or teenagers, you know, like I saw a 14-year-old young man and his mother who loves him to death, and he had put his fist through a pane glass window. And she brought him in because she could see the future. Like, this is the end of childhood. Mm. This is the end of our intimacy. And he's going to be a rebellious teenager. And I said to him something like, you know, there is a story. It's the most powerful story about who teenagers are and that it's your job to, in a way, be rebellious. And the concern for your family, concern for your relationship with your mother, that that should be her job. I said, now that's a powerful story. And I, I don't know, like, is that is that grabbing hold of you? Is that limiting your ma your imagination? Or does it resonate with you? Hmm. You know, and does that make sense to you? That that might be the road you're going to step onto for the next five or six years. And he said something so beautiful. He said, what I did will never happen again. He said, and I have things to think about. You know, and mm -hmm. we can, you know, we can really help young people decide that they are capable, that they are, you know, not marginal figures in family life, that they are not passengers, that they are capable of ethics, they are capable of developing their own moral code, mm -hmm. you know, for family life. But it isn't just parents who get caught up in this idea, you know, like, how's your son? Well, he just turned 15. And then the response is, you have my sympathy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, like, it's not just parents who get caught up in that. Yeah, Teenagers yeah. get caught up in it, too. And we have to help them. We have to help them out of it and to decide, is this a time or this might be a time for me to find my own moral code as a mm. family member, as mm. a citizen? Yeah, you have me thinking about, you know, I, we, I haven't like get, been able to spend much time with you over the last several years so but i i do know that you were thinking a lot about how do we situate people as protagonists in their own life right and yeah and i yeah, yeah and i'm wondering if you could say something about that like is that still something you're interested in how are you working like that that kind of thing right yeah more more and more you more, know i okay. think like like one of the workshops i gave up in vancouver a couple of weeks ago you know they had that conference yeah, I missed yeah. it. I was traveling. Otherwise, I would have yeah. liked to be there. Yeah. yeah. I know you've presented there in the mm. past. Um, 
I, you know, I gave one workshop on children, you know, and the wonderfulness synergy. The second workshop I hadn't given before, but as you recall, I've talked about it forever. And the name of the workshop was something like darkening the landscape, um, working in a context where there is a ready acknowledgement that some problems are impossible. And that's a space that interests me. And, and the main reason, or one of the reasons it interests me is because in addition to guarding against um, problem solving or psychoeducation or suggestion or optimism or eagerly moving towards the future and change and growth, you know, I'm careful about all of that for a number of reasons. One, because I think um, psychotherapy has been, to whatever degree, co-opted by capitalism and neoliberalism. And, and now the idea is that, you know, this unrestrained capitalism and the maximization of corporate growth has filtered right down to the individual. And now I have internalized the corporatization. So I've, I've internalized neoliberal and corporatization, and I am to treat myself as a mini corporation. Mm. And, and Michael White has talked about this, you know, like, yeah. do I, how do I maximize my resources? How do I dig for my resources? How do I grow? How do I actualize? You know, how do I improve? improve and grow and so i've i've pulled away from these ideas you know more and more of, of growing and, and improving and instead i'm drawn to darken the landscape and say what if there is <clears throat> no possibility out there then what and it takes us into a story genre that might be dystopian you know at, at, at its extreme mm -hmm. But what it does is it forces us to take an interest in the protagonist because there are storylines where the pro protagonist is living with no shortage of meaning, no shortage of purpose. And we can see this, you know, like in class struggle, race struggle, gender struggle, you know, in broad, on broader scales. Um, where, where conditions are simply oppressive, where power is distributed radically unevenly. And we see people persevere and find rich meaning in living despite circumstances being impossible. All right. so, so that's, that's really what I'm, what I'm talking a lot about these days. Great. Um, I wish I would have seen the workshop and we got to get you to do something local here <laughs> soon. Uh, okay. Um, what advice do you have for therapists who are new to narrative therapy and want to expand their practice? Um, study, you know, um, a lot of therapists, you know, a lot of people come into therapy with skills, you know, they're, they're really gifted at em empathy. They really know how to be a friend. They know how to care. Um, on the other hand, um, I can remember reading in a social work text that um, something that new therapists often are short on is empathy. <clears throat> Maybe it's because they feel pressure to help people 
improve and move forward. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, David Epstein would say that Malcolm Gladwell's, was it his idea that takes 10,000 yeah. hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's taken me 10,000 hours. Not that I haven't been good, you know, right. to, to various degrees along the way, but it's taken me those 10,000 hours. Um, and so, yeah, so I think studying, reading, I think reading is really important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are ample training opportunities. I was thinking about that this morning uh, in preparation, you know, that there's the Vancouver School of Narrative Therapy that has this annual conference and then foundations courses through the year. They have VSNT, Vancouver School of Narrative Therapy, dot live. There is the Narrative Therapy Center in Toronto. There's the Narrative Therapy Initiative in Boston. Hmm. There's reauthoring teaching in Vermont, you know, yeah. that's an online platform with rich, rich material with Peggy Sachs. Right. Um, but then there are places like CPI and, and Miracle Mile, you know, your center, my center. And we offer something especially unique, you know, which is people can come to us and every week meet with clients and come in and talk about their work and bring in transcript and bring in video, yep. you know, week after week, have a two hour intensive training every week um, and spend, you know, for us, it's a 17 month commitment. I don't know what yours is. Uh, 12 months. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah. we upped it recently, okay. but from 12, we were 12 forever, but we 17 months kind of works better in our structure with our funding. Sure. Um, but anyway, yeah, and they it's a deep dive. You know, it's a deep, deep dive. And by the time they get out, they have pretty good version, my version. But you know, we also bring guest speakers in. We'd love to bring you in too, Chris. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, Larry's come in, Stevens come in, David's come in, hmm. Jenny comes, Debbie Kate comes, um, and even um, Todd May came and did a week on Foucault. Rachel Feldman, you know. Um, Michelle Chong, you know, we, 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 you know, we have a lot of people coming in during the year, you know, which is nice for me because I can take the week off. You yeah, know? Right, right. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, they should study. They really, yeah. they really need to study and read. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, are there any recent developments in narrative therapy that are, you're excited about? How are you envisioning the future of narrative therapy? Yeah, I mean, it seems, um, you know, I mean, I think everything rests on the foundation of Michael's work, mm -hmm. Michael and David, you know, everything rests on their foundation. Like the work they did was so, um, I won't say complete, but it was so vast, you know, that whatever I'm doing, like until David kind of encouraged me to write, I really thought I don't really have anything to say. Mm -hmm. You know, and then when you start writing, you can find things to say, but it's all, you know, it's all on that foundation, you know, and then you can, you know, you have stories to tell, you have little tweaks here and there, you have an idea. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so people are doing that, you know, and people are, you know, like Jeff has really, he's really gotten into the body. Mm -hmm. Um and and 
and then Lynn Rosen is doing interesting work, isn't she? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On on um, EMDR and there it is. EMDR mm-hmm. and the body, mm-hmm. embodied embodied experience. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are there are you know there's David Nyland, Rock Nyland, you know up in Sacramento, you know with kind of trans identity and trans activism and narrative practice. Stephen, his work with couples mm-hmm. is something interesting and new. And I think that, um, and and so bringing in new voices and diverse voices, um, and where else is that happening? I think Peggy's doing that as well. Sure, yeah. Um, there's something interesting about that. You know, I can remember watching Tina Fey and Amy Poehler co-hosting the the, Glo- the uh, Golden Globes two years in a row. And you get two women comics, you know, up on the stage, you know, who are thoughtful and they have a whole different perspective. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, you know, mm-hmm. and so there's something inevitable that is happening and will continue happening in narrative practice, you know, when more people of color, um, you know, are, are taking more leadership positions and heading up some of these major narrative, you know, sites. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's I think it's alive and well, and and it's interesting that <clears throat> you know it's happening in Turkey, it's happening in Hong Kong, it's happening in mainland China, it's happening in Belgium, it's been happening forever in in England, mm-hmm. um, but you know we have these little pockets, and every you know it's everybody's doing you know narrative therapy, and you know some of it is um, you know it's all its own. I mean, it's all kind of you know, on, on a shared foundation and it's all its own brand. Right. Right. That's exciting. Okay. Finally, last question for you, David, um, what books, ideas, films, thinkers, what's capturing your attention these days? Yeah. I, I, I just went and grabbed my books cause I knew you were going to ask <laughs> me this. So here are the books. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the two books that I, uh, I should say, well, actually I, the four books that I leaned on most heavily in my workshops, you know, a couple of weeks ago were uh, the George Saunders book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Mm, yeah. Uh, David Epstein recommended that to me. Why? Why, why that book? Um, because Saunders, you know, Saunders is the one, like the thing that I've taken mainly from his writing is he's talking about Chekhov and how Chekhov sets up the story. Yeah. Here's a woman who's trapped. Mm-hmm. with no future and then here's a handsome bachelor of means who comes into the picture and he said you can take the crapo version which is they fall in love but then the writer saunders or uh, Chekhov makes it clear that that is not going to happen and now what yeah and so for me that that was supportive of um yes what do you do when the situation's impossible I, I really enjoyed that book too. Yeah. 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 So keep going. What else you got? Yeah. So that's one. <laughs> uh, Cheryl White recommended Decolonizing the Mind by Nguji Thiongo. This is a, a scholar, um, international scholar. He's out of Kenya and he writes about um, growing up in colonial British Kenya and how he internalized the colonialism and also was 
literally only allowed to speak English. And when you're speaking the language of the colonizer, um, you can only imagine in colonial terms. And for me, what I took from that um, was that we're living in an era, psychological, psychiatric era, where the colonizer is psychiatry. And so we're all thinking in psychiatric language and we're all sitting with each other and saying to our friends, like, I am so OCD. Right, right. Or that was my ADD. I'm totally ADD, you know, or we're all talking about, we've all been fitted into four categories of identity, mood disorder, attentional problem, addictive tendency, or an anxiety disorder of some kind. And so we're, we're, we're all kind of trapped. We're all colonized in that, in that sense. And so, so that's, that's, that's writing that interests me. Hmm. Uh, neoliberal capitalism, you know, I read Wendy, Wendy Brown's book, um, uh, and so I think a lot, like a lot of us do, I know you do, you know, think about neo -cap neo neoliberal capitalism and not just the neoliberal uh, capitalist um, economy that we're living in, but the neoliberal capitalist society that we're living in and the neoliberal capitalist psychology mm -hmm. that we are living in. Mm -hmm. So think about that. Uh, and then I, I, um, in preparation, I picked up Jerome Bruner. You know, I was just reading him again, uh, a book, a short book um, written maybe 20 years ago called Making Stories. Hmm. So that was just nice to, to read Bruner. He's, he's special. Yeah. Um, you know, because, you know, because that's, you know, our work is always thinking about power, always thinking about the politics of identity, but also, you know, working in a narrative frame. Right, right. Wonderful. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate you making the time. It's great to see you again and, and just be in conversation with you again. Um, yeah, you too, Chris. It's yeah. nice to reconnect yeah. and um, spend a little time with you. Yeah, and hopefully we can do it again in the future. Um, but thanks. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, yeah, real pleasure. Well, that's our show, and it was wonderful to reconnect with David and be in conversation with him again. Uh, just brought me right back, did a little time traveling. So that was fun. Um, before I go, I want to let you know that there are some new videos up on the Radical Therapist YouTube channel. Please go check that out. Like, subscribe. I uh, just did a recent video on holding space. Always a lot of talk about holding space in the therapy world and outside of the therapy world. But how do we, how do we hold space? And um, I shared some ideas about that. So go check it out, Radical Therapist on YouTube. Um, and, of course, you can find uh, me on the socials on Instagram at The Radical Therapist, Facebook at The Radical Therapist. Come come join me. Come be in community. We would love to have you. And I think that's it. So, as always, you know, thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>